Hello, everyone. This is Richard Meadey, Crawford Media in Denver. We are doing a special public affairs series on counseling culture. Today, I'm going to be speaking with both Rita Schulte and Teresa Kerminski-Burke, and she is the founder of Rachel's Vineyard, which is the largest post-abortion ministry in the world. Her healing programs offer a unique sensory-based treatment which integrates emotional, psychological, and spiritual dimensions. The healing journey uses creative living scripture exercises and rituals which engage the mind, body, and soul. Here's Rita Schulte. Thus says the Lord, in Ramah is heard the sound of moaning, a bitter weeping. Rachel mourns her children. She refuses to be consoled because her children are no more. Thus says the Lord, cease your cries of mourning. Wipe the tears from your eyes. The sorrow you have shown shall have its reward, says the Lord. There is hope for your future. So I'm sure it was no accident that you chose the name Rachel's Vineyard. Can you tell our audience a little bit about that? Rachel's referring to the grieving mother. And the most poignant part for that is the sorrow you have shown shall have its reward. There is hope for your future. When most women are so consumed by despair, even the despair of having to make an abortion choice, and then the the really um, terrible grieving that follows. And of course, um, you know, for years, I've been studying this as a post-traumatic stress disorder. But now, as you probably know, there's a new diagnosis that we can really use in the DSM, which is prolonged grief disorder. And that's really what I see that spans the lifetime of this yearning, this longing, this missing the children and re- and deep regrets and sadness that there's members of the family that are no longer here. And that's a loss to everybody as all life lost is a loss to the family and to those that would have been friends, partners, all that. So um, I think it's, it's something that a lot of people, at least back then, <laughs> when I started this, where we're going next year will be 40 years of ministry work for me. Wow, <laughs> Teresa. I'm work and um, spreading the ministry. But the word vineyard came because when I first presented this at a professional conference, everybody didn't want anything that would have to do with God. Right? Of All course. The professionals, they're like, I would never use that. I would never. And, um, and I thought, oh, I don't want to... Um, it was very discouraging. Like uh, I was so excited to share and it was this big <laughs> wet blanket. Yeah, so, buzzkill. But, but I went back home and I, I was led directly to the scripture about the vineyard that remain united to me and that a branch can't bear fruit unless it's connected to the vine. And without me, you can do nothing. So that was my affirmation to say, put the Lord in between and behind and in front of every exercise, which is what it is. And it's been amazingly fruitful. And it has spread to 80 some countries. It's in 37 languages. There's over 500,000 volunteers throughout the world who are involved in the work of Rachel's Vineyard. We have it in interdenominational and Catholic settings um, for for women and men. And we also had siblings come who've lost family members to abortion and they know of their mother's abortion. And we've also had abortionists come and providers, nurses who work in the industry who have who are suffering that moral injury of killing and the nightmares that they have and they they'll say on our pro, in our program I didn't know where else to go mm-hmm. like wow 
powerful. You know, especially when especially when it's deemed healthcare, you know? Yes. Yes, under the guise there, of healthcare. There really is um a complicated grieving and and a disenfranchised grief where people just don't talk about it. They'll fight for rights, they'll have all the rhetoric, my body, my choice, but that personal experience inside the body. And I think this is really important, especially when we look today somatically at how our bodies store the trauma, how our symptoms tell the story of our trauma. And um, for years I've been teaching about this, but but I think that even when we look at Roe versus Wade being overturned and going back to the States, the outrage, um, the the rage that was seen in that, and and people said they don't feel safe. They were even, you know, attacking crisis pregnancy centers and saying, putting slogans on like if if we're if we're not safe, you're not safe. But that sense of safety really has everything to do with trauma and the body. So there's two things I think are important to bring out here when we think about how the body holds the trauma and the sense of safety, that a survivor mode that's kind of indicates PTSD is actually the fight or flight mode of trauma. So you want to get out there and fight or you want to flee it. And this is all the things I saw that made me go into this as a as something that I knew was needed because in the first support group I ever did with eating disorders, it was fight or flight all around like a bomb going off because someone brought up the subject of abortion. And um, it was really, it was very, very powerful. And then my supervisor shut it all down and told me I had no business prying into people's abortion. And I said, I, I'm not prying there. You know, this one woman brought it up. I think she has PTSD. And he said, that's a psychotic re you know, reaction caused by her medication. And I was told, don't bring it. So if someone's trying to stop it this much, I'm like, I want to know more. And I started a, the first, um, one of the first that I know of, therapeutic support groups for healing after abortion. And Rachel's Vineyard grew from that only because I realized I needed to put um, a spirituality in that because we're dealing with issues of death and moral injury and you know, that that there needs to be a way to reconcile those things. And without that, I felt like people were telling their stories and being traumatized. So then I bought in the, you know, the body, the somatic work and rituals for grieving that didn't require words, things that you could do and pour that would have meaning and give the body a release for all the grief that it was carrying. And, and people even looked different after the retreats. They, they were very like the bent over woman in the scripture, you know, so burdened with, with not only the grieving, but the moral injury, the betrayals, all of that load, such a burden to bear. And their body was bearing that. So there was a lot of illnesses and um, yeah. People, people look different. They, they sat up, their shame was lifted and mm -hmm. we called it an extreme makeover at the time, you know? So, um, but that's a, that's a little bit about it, but I think that it speaks to the trauma that's unhealed in this culture when we see this rage against, you know, and this sense of threat. And the other thing I think is really important is I have written about, uh, and taught about abortion as a traumatic reenactment for previous sex, sexual abuse. And that that is never discussed, how women with abuse in their history are very vulnerable to abor abortion, being pressured into abortions, and even being taken by their abusers for abortions that, that you know, gets rid of any evidence of the crimes that are committed against young girls. So 
these are these are issues that I feel like are are rarely discussed. I, I've never heard Oprah talk about this link, and we've done we've done research on those coming to our retreats, and sixty five percent of those coming into Rachel's Vineyard had histories of sexual abuse. And if there is a previous trauma, you're much more likely to have immediate and debilitating symptoms of trauma. Maybe that nervous breakdown, you know, when there's a and even the APA. The American Psychological Association says a history of trauma before another traumatic procedure is is not going to bode well for the mental health of that person. We have talked about this on this show uh, about uh, it's it's almost as though there's PTSD throughout the whole country right now in these divisions that we're seeing all of this uh, from the insurrection and we see this this violent reaction to the overturning of Roe versus Wade. Uh, and it seems like everybody is post-abortive. Uh, and when you look at the numbers of how many kids have been taken from us, is there any other word for what this country is going through collectively? Yeah. And let me just add one thing to that. Second part of the question is, why do you think people are so angry? Why are they so angry? I think that they've been traumatized and that they have been justifying. A lie doesn't make any sense unless it's felt to be dangerous. I think Jung said that. When the conscience is aborted, the truth gets distorted. And I think that there's been an abortion of conscience in this nation. And in order to take the life of a part of yourself... It's a self-destructive act, and it happens in the body. And so the body has all the physiology of tension, of of um, heart palpitations, of feeling a sense of threat. So people, even though they're very safe, it hasn't been outlawed. It was just going back to the States, and there was this overreaction. And that overreactivity is a symptom of trauma. And we have to see the many phases of grief that we don't recognize you, you see the screaming people, they're in a lot of pain. pain. They've experienced trauma and they haven't healed from it. And I do think that that's a ripple effect that that even we could talk about epigenetics and everything else. It gets passed on to the next generation and the next generation. And unhealed mothers want their daughters to have abortion. And all the feminist matriarchy who started all this, they all had traumatic abortions. They really felt that by legalizing it would remove the trauma. Right. But yeah. it hasn't. It hasn't. And yeah. um, and I think that, you know, across the board, whether it's blacks reenacting all the they're targeted as a community for abortion. But there's also a reenactment in being separated mother from child and uh, with slavery and everything. There were generations and generations of families being ripped apart. And it was almost like an acceptable thing when it's so wrong. But. To, to buy that as something that they need for empowerment. And I think that goes way back because women would, there are some women that rather than have their child be born into slavery, they would abort it. That That's, again, look at the societal issues that make life unwelcome. And yet, even with the border crisis and letting all these people from all over the world come it's it's like unrestricted, but there's a vacuum from the millions of babies that have been 
aborted in our own country. But then someone who hasn't really addressed that will be like, oh, but we are the welcoming, loving people. Meanwhile, we'll we want to fund abortion. We want corporations to fund it. We want the military to fund it and give you a two week holiday so that you can go to the motel of your choice. They make it look very appealing. Yeah. I mean, since the time of Margaret Sanger, the the snowball just rolled down the hill and got bigger and bigger until, you know, it took over. But I think it's just like anything else that's going on in our culture today. We're sold a bill of goods. They're doing that with the sexual agenda with with kids. This is what I write about traumatic reenactment. When it's not healed, you just find other ways to live it out. My book, Forbidden Grief, is all about that. All the ways that an eating disorder is a reenactment of the trauma of, you know, all this many common symptoms. But what I will say here about the transgender um, movement is it's very interesting to me when I look through the lens of traumatic reenactment, because you have a surgery now that's supposed to fix something. And if you don't concede to this surgery, then your kid's going to supposedly kill themselves. their life. Yep. And this will panic anybody who's previously lost a child, especially an unhealed, ungrieved abortion. They're going to panic and they're going to be like, whatever it takes, whatever it takes. And and now it's a surgery, a medical procedure, a mutilation that they're consenting to, just like the mother. And I say that the reenactment is in this as an answer to society's ills. Instead of addressing them, we're going to target the child and control the child and disfigure the child. It's a reenactment on so many levels, whether people are aware or not. And I think the threat of of what might happen if that child's not with me. And the other thing is, and this is really unusual, but I've been doing this for 40 years. So I've heard all over the world, really, I've heard stories and there are similar themes that people will say. And we've had siblings of aborted children come on our retreats. And there's a sense, this existential survival guilt, like, why am I alive when they died? And that there's a sense that many mothers have said where their children have known, and they'll say things like there's another child, there's a, and brings it to the consciousness of the mother. And that's what makes, propels her healing. So like God uses that. But I do think it's a, it's an interesting thing to ponder of if there was a boy or three boys before me, am I a boy or a girl? I don't know what I'm supposed to be. Right. And I think that there's something in the psyche about that, or I'm not sure. I'll be writing more about this and I'm going to teach something on it uh, with real case studies with real. So your book uh, is called Forbidden Grief. Forbidden Grief is all about how um, abortions are reenacted in the life, in relationships, in reproductive choices, even in, I didn't go into this in my book, but even plenty of people, plenty of women have said they chose lesbian relationships rather than to um, to ever be in that predicament again to have wow. to. Wow, that's fascinating. That I know men, I've worked with families where their moms had a lot of abortion trauma. They couldn't regulate themselves. They were numbing with drugs and alcohol and whatnot. And that when they would go into their rages, um, that the ch- the children didn't feel safe. One one fellow I worked with told me he used to hide in the closet, hide in the closet. And then, of course, when he came out of the closet, he, he wanted to, he was afraid of women, right? Mm-hmm. So it, just like these interesting things. And then it becomes cultural. And I, I think there's a, there's a good 
there's a good quote. I'd have to find it somewhere. I probably don't have it, but it was about how we we celebrate. I think Fulton Sheen gave this quote, but first we um, like condemn evil, but then we celebrate it, and then we practice it, and then we legalize it, and then we condemn anyone who still wants to call it evil. Wow. And I think that's kind of like this whole idea that when you're not living in truth, just how everything gets distorted and you can end up in a society that thinks it's okay. Whereas, you know, before gender mutilation in Africa, we were collecting money for it and sending people over to try to stop it. But look what we're doing here. As I, know. I, I can't, I, I really, it's so hard to wrap uh, my mind around it. Richard and I interviewed a young woman, Chloe Cole, uh, a few months back, I think over the summer, and she was a victim of this. And she's out there, God bless her, telling the story, appearing before Congress. I mean, it, it reminds me of the scripture that in Isaiah that says, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. And I, I just love so much, Teresa, that you're addressing the body piece of this. I do that somatic work as a, you know, a suicide loss trauma survivor. I've had, um, you know, EMDR and done body work. And it's really no joke that the body keeps the score. So I'm curious, you know, for people who are listening um, that may have gone through this and are struggling, what kind of reenactments? I mean, you started this whole thing working with eating disordered clients. That that was the burden on your heart. You were working with the, I worked with nothing but eating disorders when I first started practicing. What kinds of things were you seeing body-wise? Because some people may not even tune into it. First of all, you know, you got to notice, you got to notice your body. You got to notice your thoughts, right? You can't change what you don't notice. So what kinds of things have you kind of seen over the years for a woman post-abortively what do they experience that might be a body reenactment? Well, I'll just use some eating disorders here because um, one client that I had had an incomplete abortion, which means they have to go back and a second time. But she, her first symptoms was this incredible pain in her abdomen. That was the pain of an incomplete abortion and a raging infection that comes. And when she went back, she said she had to finish the job. And um, so her eating disorder was the abuse of laxatives. And this woman would take up to 80 purgative pills in a sitting. She would recreate that whole story of her abortion story, meaning all the cramping and that um, I have to get it all out. That was the theme. I have to get it all out. So whenever she would eat something, she would purge until everything was out. She was in and out of hospitals, I think 13 different hospitalizations. Her electrolytes were all messed up. This was a compulsive addiction that developed after the trauma, the traumatic experience. And, you know, um, when I made this interpretation that it was a, her body was telling the story and she said, oh, you just made my blood curdle, which would be unconscious information coming to awareness. And um, she did, she went on a Rachel's Vineyard retreat immediately all this reenactment stopped because the story had been yeah. released and transferred to a past event and she didn't need to keep compulsively reliving the story. Um, other things, other eating disorders can come on. Um, let's see, um, you know, not wanting to get rid of your breasts and your hips and anything that makes you look sexual because being sexual made you 
get pregnant and have an abortion, which was a great trauma. Other people will compulsively overeat as a way to build up so they don't look sexual. With the anorexics, they're going to stop their period altogether. Mm -hmm. And then that's like a pregnancy state, right? Yeah. And so there's there's a lot of fantasies that get played out as reenactment fantasies of having a baby. One woman I worked with used to stuff a, a... some, you know, like a pillow in her belly and go out shopping for maternity clothes. And she'd look at herself in the mirror and think she looked so beautiful. And then she would go out into her car, rip out the towel and, and sit there and shake and say, you're not pregnant. This is just a stupid towel. She's towel. She started to feel like she was crazy, but the reenactment was ripping the baby out and then yeah. having a place to grieve because she couldn't grieve this. Everyone says, oh, you made the best choice. You know, you'll have another. And there was no validation for the just incredible amount of emptiness. So in this fantasy, she's reliving the emotional experience of the trauma. And a lot of people with traumatic reenactment, people don't consciously set up to do this. Right. Some, some reenactments are, are engaging in child abuse and feeling all the shameful aftermath. And you feel like a terrible mother because that's that was sort of like the emotional experience of having to do this. Um, other things can be reenacted with money and credit cards and, you know, things. You know, I had a uh, so this person was making lunch for their children one day packing the lunch, making a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Oh, the jelly reminded them of clots. Yeah, I hear that. And the jelly fell on the floor and she just flipped out. That was the first of it. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it's, you're right. The body keeps the score and And you don't want to just glass over that. I think the body and the behaviors and even the activism tells the story. Yeah. Like, like, um, you know, we we talk about the pro-choice side and all their investment in keeping this legal because we dare not question, um, you know, that it's okay, right? And I know that when that happened last summer, I do believe it pricked the conscience of America. Our hotline was ringing off the hooks. And we had, um, we had a lot of older women who were stalwart pro-choice people. And during COVID also, we got a lot of calls because they didn't have the normal distractions that we usually have, like work. Yeah, you have to sit with yourself and be with yourself. So it all starts coming to the surface. Bubbling up. So between COVID and then that, I just felt like there was this whole realm of people who never questioned it until those things happened. And they felt like all the news isn't speaking for them because they were just de- devastated. It brought it forward in awareness because we can repress just about anything we don't want to think about as long as we can. And we can use a lot of substances and other things to, to be the problem. <laughs> sure. So in all your years of doing this ministry, what do you think is the hardest thing for a woman to overcome post-abortion? I think it's giving themselves permission to grieve because they feel like I did this to myself. Um, I allowed it. I, and this, you make your bed, you lie in it. You know, Mm. I think that, but beyond that, I think it's forgiving themselves. 
Yeah, Even, that's what I was going to say. You know, yeah. forgiving forgiving oneself and others, like you mentioned earlier about the the nurses, the doctor, whatever. Um, even, you know, the partner, if they were, you know, pressured into an abortion, I think that's a huge piece of recovery for both men and women. Yeah. Um, I, I think the way we handle that in Rachel's Vineyard is very beautiful because they might, if they know God and a lot of women don't, but if they do know him, they might believe that he has the power to forgive, but they can't forgive themselves. So even that spiritual resource isn't there, but we have one exercise that we do. It's the woman that, um, the woman caught in adultery and we go through a meditation where you're the woman and, and then Jesus comes and let the one without sin cast the first stone. We'd act out the whole thing. But at the end, she experiences the mercy because it's all the living scriptures are exercises where you enter the story and, and you meet Jesus, you dialogue with him and we act it all out. Like, so at the, awesome. when, it's, when it's over, it's very much a body thing, right? When it's over, everyone, picks a rock and they carry it around for like 24 hours. And that represents their inability to forgive. And a lot of women um, in carrying that and watching other people carry it. And some people will go for the biggest rock and you see them struggling with it, but they bring it to the meals. They take it into the shower. They have it all the time. And it, it you can see that it's interfering. I can't carry my book in a big rock. I have to put it down to dish up my spaghetti, whatever it is. Um, but Everybody has a lot of compassion as they watch and you'll feel compassion for others long before you feel it for yourself. yourself. That, that That's the value of a group because the group really, really is so cathartic and, and you'll see somebody make a breakthrough and then everybody else wants it too. And right. they know it's possible because someone else is willing to take the risk and be the first to, you know, reach out and touch the cloak or whatever the ritual. Sure. I, I used to do that exact same thing with the rock. In fact, I wrote about it in my, I think it was my first book shattered. Um, and not only that, but the rock, you know, I also was zooming in on this idea that carrying the rock is the weight of the burden that you're carrying. You know, what, what people realize a lot of times you got like a whole sack full of rocks on your back and you're the only one that can right. cut the rope. Right. That's right. And I, I think what people realize across the board is that that their way of staying connected to their lost child was through the anger, through the shame, through the unforgiveness, through the beating themselves up, because that was the only way they knew how to remember their child. So by going through this grieving process and we have bereavement dolls and we have a memorial service and there's a lot, they're allowed to physically express with these little bereavement dolls. And they're able to say, their, speak their love. It reverses all that. And now they have a healthy ways to stay connected that doesn't involve living memorials of self-destruction. Dr. Teresa Burke on Counseling Culture today. For more information on Rachel's Vineyard and some of the retreats uh, and all of the things that they're doing as far as studies, get in touch at rachelsvineyard.org. I'm Richard Beatty, Crawford Media, Denver.